So the title of my talk is From Pinball Machine to River, and you'll hopefully find out why that is over the next little while. And then um, today, full moon of May, in our tradition, we celebrate that as the anniversary of the Buddha's enlightenment. And many other Buddhists and other cultures will be doing likewise. Yeah. And it's said a little bit more in terms of legend and myth that if you practice on a full moon day, and particularly this full moon day, your practice is something like 100,000 times more powerful. Yeah, so let's collectively believe that today. So everything we do today um, in terms of our practice is 100,000 times more powerful. Yeah, so that's quite exciting. So maybe today we also will completely and utterly free our minds because that's what the Buddha's enlightenment was. He was an individual, lived in northern India uh, roughly two and a half thousand years ago who through his own vision, determination, courage, um, just extraordinariness, sat still, looked within and freed his mind. So I'm going to say a little bit about enlightenment and about the Buddha, because that seems relevant today. And then I'm going to talk about how enlightenment or the enlightened state can lead to an abundant life or an abundant attitude to life or an abundant approach to life. Yeah. And I'm going to suggest that it's the, it's the profound, almost unimaginable transformation of view that would underlie that shift from tightness to abundance. Talk a bit about the view. Um, I'll talk a little bit about <clears throat> my sense of what happens when one really sees into the nature of things is one cannot but connect with others. So connection becomes your complete default setting. So I'm going to talk a bit about that. Um, and I'm going to talk about, well, how do we, as mere unenlightened human beings, begin that shift from clinging and grasping to living with this completely and utterly open attitude. And I'm going to suggest that we can, we can begin that journey or we, and we can continue that journey with giving, with generosity, with dana, which is traditionally the first step on the path of the bodhisattva's training. And a bodhisattva is somebody who has vowed to attain enlightenment for the sake of all beings. And it's said that generosity is where that practice begins. And of course, it can also take us all the way. So I'm going to talk a bit about generosity and my experience of generosity. And I think it is a, a, a very, very beautiful quality, both to express and to receive. And I think Sangha is in a way a kind of living embodiment of all kinds of generosity. Okay, so let's just start a bit about the Buddha's enlightenment um, I think it's always good, even, even for those of us who have heard this many, many times before, it's always good to reflect on the life of this human being, Siddhartha Gautama, who lived in a totally different culture to ours, um, northern India, a long, long time ago, two and a half thousand years ago, kind of unimaginably different from a Westerner living in the 21st century. And yet, his mind, his tendencies... Um, his, his quest to move from um, a contracted mind to an expansive mind is ex exactly the same as ours. Yeah. So we can, we can translate all the principles of his journey to our, um, the context that we're practicing in today.
So he was born a prince, um, had, according to the literature, had quite a privileged upbringing. Um, you've got to remember, nothing was written down at that point. It was a completely oral tradition. So there's quite a lot of different stories of the Buddha's life, um, but it's all just been passed down orally over the centuries. So it's hard to know exactly what his life was like, but it seems to be consistently said that he was born um, into a, a privileged upbringing. Um, and his father expected him to become a leader in a worldly sense. Yeah. However, he had, as a young man, what, what's called the four sights. Again, it's not completely clear whether this is historically accurate or whether it's more metaphorical. It doesn't really matter. The main thing is that these four experiences impacted him very, very deeply. So the first sight is when he saw a sick person he saw a sick person. Now, presumably he'd seen other sick people, so maybe it was like he really saw a sick person. And he thought, there's a sick person, I too will become sick. Is there any way to avoid sickness? And he realised, no, it was an inevitable part of um, being born as a human being, you too will get sick. He saw an old person. And again, presumably he'd seen lots of old people. But he really saw an old people. You know how it is when sometimes you see something that you've seen many, many times before and suddenly you really see it. So that's how I understand the four sights. It's like he really saw an old person. And it's like, oh, I too will get old. I too will get old. He saw a dead person. You know, really saw a dead person and realised there was no escaping death and he too would die. And then he saw a monk, a wandering mendicant. He saw someone who had committed themselves to the spiritual life, and that person had tremendous poise, dignity, grace. And he was very, very attracted to that. I suppose he probably saw the, the, the wandering mendicant or the monk as somebody who had dedicated their life to answering the, the big questions. You know, if, if there's sickness, old age and death, then what's the point? You know, that's a big question that probably many of us have had. Maybe some of us are here because we've had those questions. You know, what's the point? What, what's, the, what's the point of a human life if you're just going to get sick, get old and then die? So he saw the, the, the seeker, the spiritual person, and he decided to follow that path, which of course is very, very radical um, for him to, what's called, go forth from the householder's life into the homeless life. And again, we can take that on quite a symbolic level. Yeah. All of us are here because there is some degree of going forth in each of us. You know, we've chosen to come here and meditate and be with our spiritual friends and hear about the Buddha's life rather than go clubbing. Yeah? Saturday tonight, isn't it? Saturday. So, you know, we could be going clubbing tonight. We've chosen to come here. That's interesting, isn't it? Really listen to that whatever it is in your heart that's brought you here, that, that is a going forth from a particular life that we could have, worldly, to one that's a little bit more refined, perhaps, and we're spending all this time this weekend looking at these deep questions. Why am I here? What is the point of human life? Yeah. So in a way, we are following the Buddha's footsteps, just doing that. He went to various teachers. He was obviously an extremely intense young man. You know, he... he 
it, it was a burning, burning quest in his heart. It wasn't just, well, I'd quite like to be a bit more relaxed. <laughs> you know, clearly it was, he was on fire with these questions. What is the point? What is the meaning of life? Went to lots of different teachers, um, and he quite quickly mastered everything that they taught, and then realized, no, that's not the answer. So that must have been very challenging. You know, you go forth, you go to teachers, you think they're going to give you the answer. And because he was so um, talented spiritually, he would quickly master their teachings, and he still had the question, because these teachings didn't give him the answer. So then he, he kind of um, tried many different things, including extreme asceticism or asceticism. I never know how to pronounce that word, but mortification of the flesh. So he um, starved himself, basically, trying to kind of overcome the senses, you know, overcome desire, overcome worldly, being, being based in the, in, the, in, the, in the human form and that kind of needy, graspy wanting way, he almost starved himself to death. Yeah. Still, it didn't provide him with the answer. Then he remembered the time as a young boy when he quite naturally was sitting under a rose apple tree. He was just sitting there quietly. And quite naturally, deep pleasure and stillness arose in his mind. So he had that memory of the spontaneous experience he'd had as a child where he felt this much, much deeper peace. And this, this is very, very interesting. And he realized at that point that not all pleasure is bad. This isn't always brought out when people talk about the Buddhist life, but it was a significant turning point. Because up till then, he'd seen that all pleasure led to desire. That was more the prevailing attitudes of the um, spiritual traditions of his time. And he had this experience of deep pleasure. And he thought that not all pleasure led to desire, there was some pleasure that would lead to open heart, happiness and joy. Yeah? So the happiness and joy in an open heart is very central to the Buddhist path because he had this great insight at that point. And so he started eating again, got stronger, and then he, he decided to sit still under a tree. And this is what he said, my flesh may wither away and my bones may dry up until only skin, sinews and bones remain. But I will not give up until I have found whatever firmness, persistence and effort can bring. Until I have found liberation, I will sit here unflinching and utterly still. That's amazing, isn't it? To have that kind of hunger for the truth, that kind of commitment. He just thought, okay, that's it. Tried all these different things, um, you know, nearly starved myself to death, started to eat again, interested in pleasure, interested in is there a way of having joy and happiness that doesn't just lead to more craving. And then he just sat down like a rock. I will not move until I have figured this thing out until I have gone so far inside that I find vastness, the blue sky, freedom. Yeah. And it's said that on the full moon of May, he completely freed himself. 
Yeah, and we're going to have readings tonight in the puja. We're having a special puja. We've got about 20 minutes of readings, which is all about the Buddha's enlightenment experience, which is a fantastic thing to hear. What actually happened under the tree that night? So I won't say too much now, other than he completely freed his mind. And you could say he examined his direct experience with such depth, such commitment, such courage, that he completely unraveled the knot of reactivity. He completely unraveled the knot of the reactive mind and the reactive heart. Can you imagine what that might feel like? I mean, it's almost unimaginable because we're so driven by likes and dislikes. You know, I don't like that, go away. I like that, I want more. We're so habitually doing that all the time. Imagine what it must be like to not have anything within your body, heart and mind that has got any flavour of knottedness. I think knot is a good word, isn't it? Where things are bound together and they're tight. It's just completely released with his enlightenment. And an image that I sometimes get a sense of, it's it's like a house of cards collapsing and left just vast, open, fluid, unbounded space within him. And there's still phenomena in the world. There's still people like us. There's still buildings, trees, mountains and so on. But rather than relating to things as fixed and static, you see them as the rising and falling of phenomena. And it's a ceaseless flow. Just everything is open, luminous. Um, Still there, but not fixed, not static. So I'm, I'm saying that. I mean, I don't really know. And my sense is the more I practice, the more inexpressibly mysterious it gets. Yeah, that's one of the very curious things about giving a Dharma talk is you're kind of pointing towards something that you don't really know. Yeah, so hopefully I'm giving you a, a, a sort of flavour of something but I don't really know what it's like. But I get an intuition, very strong intuition that it has something of that flavour of being, not having any knots left in your mind and your heart. And your body, probably. So this is called seeing into the true nature of things. So he had that experience. He sat with it. And two months later, on the full moon of July, we have Dharma Day in our tradition. And that's when he first um, taught what he'd realised to other people. At first he thought it would be impossible to ever communicate this to other people. And then for various reasons he decided he'd try he realised that, yes, there are, the phrase is, there are beings with but little dust in their eyes in the world, which means there are people who will be receptive to this. And in July, he began to teach others, and that's called the first turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And that turning of the wheel has just rolled down through the centuries, gone to many different cultures, and it's landed here in Herefordshire in 2016. Isn't that just astonishing and remarkable. Yeah. So we are direct children of the Buddha. I think we can see it that way. So how does enlightenment lead to abundance? Maybe you've got a little bit of a sense of that already. I think this word abundance is it's a magnificent word, isn't it? I love it. Abundant. It's got such an abundant 
sound. I think it's onomatopoeic, technically. So some other words for abundance I was thinking of is fulsomeness. So you're full, totally full of this longing for the truth. Full of life, present, vivid. Yeah. Glorious, I think that's a nice word. Glorious, full of glory. I think abundance is very open-handed and open-hearted. So this, the kind of gesture physically of living with abundance is more like this than like this. Yeah. So if you think that everything is flowing in life, you just allow it all to flow through your fingers. You're not grabbing hold of things as they pass by. Yeah. So it's got an openness about it. And of course, it's very generous. Yeah, I'll say more about that later. But generosity, I think, is very... Um, intrinsically tied up with abundance and with the enlightened state. It's an important point because sometimes enlightenment is portrayed as a kind of cool detachment, some of the ways it's described in some of the texts. Personally, I think that there is nothing that is further from the truth. Yeah. There is a kind of detachment because you're no longer attaching to things, but it's not cool, it's certainly not aloof. It's all, uh, the spiritual life is so paradoxical. So through letting go, you become more. Through detaching from attachment, you become more um, deeply alive. Yeah. So it's all very, uh, I love that again about spiritual life. It, it's very paradoxical and contradictory on a logical level because we can't grasp it logically. Yeah, we just have to surrender to the kind of poetry of it in a way. So I think abundance is a poetic word, glory, poetic word, fulsomeness, poetic word. Um, so it's a seeing through that is vividly alive and it's fearless. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that it's fearless and one of my quite strong tendencies in life is fear. So in a way, I can't quite imagine what it's like to live without fear but I can get a sense of how it may be possible. And actually, it's quite interesting talking to you now. Um, about 25 years ago, I was on a retreat where I had to give a talk, and I thought I will never be able to speak to a large gathering of people. I thought, I just can't do that. I'm too shy. I'm too nervous. I'm too fearful. And here I am. So that's interesting, isn't it? How bit by bit by bit we can change these things about us that we think I will never be able to change that. I honestly thought that I was one of these people that would never be able to give a talk. And now I go around the world and give talks to hundreds of people. So, and I'm not, and I'm not even all that nervous. I was, you know, I'm a bit nervous, but really today I'm not that nervous. Yeah. And it used to be sort of terrifying nervousness. You know, sort of diarrhea nervousness is what I used to have. So that's also interesting that we can even change, through practice, we can change things that are embedded in our physiology. That's really remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. So anyway, I just, that's just to give you a bit of hope <laughs> that we can change these deepest things about ourselves bit by bit. <clears throat> So I suggested earlier on that enlightenment leads to abundance primarily due to this complete and profound change of view, of outlook, of perspective. So what is the view of the enlightened being, the enlightened mind? 
Well, sometimes it's talked as um, seeing things as they really are, and I quite like that. I know when I first came to a Buddhist centre, people w would use that phrase, and I thought, that's a peculiar phrase. And then I reflected on it, and I thought, oh, that's an intriguing phrase. Seeing things as they really are. Because, of course, the suggestion there is that when we're not enlightened, we're not seeing things as they really are. That's fascinating, because the way we see things, we just take for granted, don't we? And we just think, well, this is the normal way of seeing. And the Buddha is saying, you can profoundly change your default setting about how you relate to the inner and outer world. And sometimes I talk about this as we're all going around with the wrong pair of spectacles on. So we've got the greed, hatred and delusion spectacles on. That's offering a kind of filter. So we see everything through the lens of greed, hatred and delusion. And when we see things as they really are, we take these off and you'll become pleasantly blurred. <laughs> so, of course, the enlightened spectacles are very clear. Yeah. But I quite like that. Um, I'm very intrigued by perception. That's one of my fascinations. We've all got different ways into this. For me, it's perception. And this idea that um, the perception that I take for granted and think is normal is profoundly deluded. And it's possible to change my default setting so I perceive things differently. And that's what the Buddha began to do, you know, or he, he completely did when he gained enlightenment. Yeah. So what, an, another nice phrase is, the world is the same, but you see it differently. I like that as well. It's not like the world suddenly changes. The world is the same, but you see it differently. <clears throat> and of course, this is called perfect vision. So this, this sort of seeing analogy is, is used. Now, um, of course, this is also metaphorical. Yeah. So if we, if we can't see for whatever reason, then it's an inner seeing. It's not, I'm not talking about, you know, looking through the eyes. I'm talking about the seeing from the heart. Yeah, so it's a metaphorical thing. And very commonly, this is talked about as seeing through the lakshanas or the marks of conditioned existence. Yeah, so I'm just going to quickly tell you what those are. For many of us, this will be very familiar territory, but as I said before, I think it's great to hear these things over and over and over again. And I think it, it, it's like little drops coming in. Yeah, and gradually they become truth rather than things we're hearing about. Yeah. So the first mark of conditioned existence is that everything is impermanent. Yeah. And I know when I first came along to Buddha Center and someone said that, I thought, oh my God, that's so obvious. <laughs> Why are they having to say that? Because it is kind of obvious, isn't it? You look outside and it's a rainy day, and yesterday it wasn't a rainy day. Um, we have the seasons. We have day becomes night becomes day. So it is obvious. And what the Buddha is saying, yeah, okay, it's obvious, but look deeper. Do you really live your life as if everything was impermanent? And then when I reflect on I thought, oh, well, perhaps not. You know, I sort of realized that it's kind of obvious on a rational level. But the Buddha is saying, no, you need to get this in your bone marrow, that everything is changing. And what that means is that everything is um, empty of equality of being static. That's quite interesting, because I think many of us relate to the world as very static. There's a static world out there, and there's a static world in here. 
um, and everything is uh, that nothing exists independently of a web of conditions. Now I'm I've got a little um, quote here from Sogyal Rinpoche, which I think is very good to give you a metaphor for this. So it isn't just theory. Yeah. So he says, think of a wave in the sea. Yeah. So if you just bring to mind a wave in the sea. Seen in one way, it seems to have a distinct entity, an end and a beginning, a birth and a death. We so we think it's a wave, it's a thing, blowing through the ocean. <clears throat> seen in another wave, seen in another way, the wave itself doesn't really exist, but it's just the behaviour of water, empty of any separate entity, but full of water. So when you really think about the wave, you come to realise that, that it is something made temporarily possible by wind and water, and is dependent on a set of constantly changing conditions. You also realise that every wave is related to every other wave. So a bit more about that later. Yeah. So when you start looking more deeply, um, you imagine that you're on a beach, you're looking out to sea, there's a wave, and you think, oh, there's a wave. And most of us never think any more deeply than that. And you begin to realise that this thing that you call a wave isn't a thing at all. It's a whole load of process that's brought about through wind and water. And it's continually changing. So it's provisionally a wave, but it's not absolutely a wave. Yeah? Wouldn't that be amazing if you spent your whole life seeing like that? Yeah? So maybe today when we go for walks, we can look at the world around us and see if we can see things as provisionally there, but not absolutely there. It's a very exciting way of looking at the world or experiencing the world. You can do it with touch. Things can feel so solid. And yet, a tree trunk is just there as a whole load of conditions coming together temporarily to form this thing that we experience as hard and solid. We have the contact with it, but actually that, that tree will eventually rot away, not be there. So, impermanence. One can spend one's whole life reflecting on impermanence and it will be a rich and fruitful life. And Sangharakshita says that if you boiled all the millions and millions of words and all the Buddhist texts down to one word that epitomizes Buddhism, that word would be impermanence. And Sabuti, who's a very senior teacher in our tradition, also says that. That it's, in a way, one of the most important words in the whole Buddhist tradition. Impermanence. Yeah. Imagine if you woke up with the call of impermanence in your ear and it stayed with you all day long and you went to sleep with the call of impermanence in your ear. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. Okay, so then the Buddha says, okay, take this even deeper and now apply this to yourself. This reflection on change, on process. Um, who are you? Who am I? If everything's changing, well, does that apply to me? I seem to be my sense of myself usually feels quite fixed, quite solid. I certainly am very attached to it. It's got this label, Vidyamala. And I go through my life um, generally quite a strong sense of I'm a fixed entity relating to you out there as fixed entities. And then I get into the whole I like you and I don't like you, etc., etc. And so my life unfolds and I'm full of knots again. Yeah? So the Buddha is saying, okay, now apply the reflection on impermanence to yourself. And we come up with insubstantiality. 
which doesn't mean that I don't exist. This is a very important point. Clearly I do exist, but I am also made up of a whole load of conditions that are coming together and um, moving apart moment by moment by moment. The person at the end of this talk will not be the same person as at the beginning of the talk, and the same is true of all of us. Yeah. And what's very interesting is, to some extent, who we have become by the end of the talk is conditioned by one another. Very, very interesting. So we are continually kind of co-creating one another. So, not wanting to out anybody, but there are a few people in the audience with their eyes closed right now. (laughs) And I can look at that, and then I can think, oh God, I'm, I'm boring, it's not working, I can get anxious, then... That changes how I am. You pick up on my anxiety. You will get a bit anxious. So we get a whole anxious thing going. We're co-creating. Luckily, that's not happening. <laughs> I'm seeing a few people with their eyes closed, and I'm thinking, that's fine. Sorry? Good, well done. So listening with your eyes. Some people listen better with their eyes closed. So that's really interesting, you see. So I just perceive something, eyes closed, and then I form a judgment. They're going to sleep because I'm boring. And then my behaviour gets changed on the basis of that. Very, very interesting. Whereas all that's happening is I'm observing, someone's got their eyes closed. I don't know anything more than that. Imagine again if you lived your life without forming these judgments and assumptions based on your sense impressions, because that's just a sense impression that I'm seeing people with their eyes closed. As it is, as I say, I'm not getting anxious, so hopefully you're not getting anxious either. (laughs) But amazing. I mean, it's so exciting when you start to unravel your fixed way of being and with it comes an awesome responsibility if we are co-creating the world then the motivation to do that in a skillful kind way becomes all the more great so i've got a lovely little quote from bante which i really really love about um self and other from the point of view of when things are loosened up like this in substantiality when you attain enlightenment You no longer have a will that is separate from that of others. It's as though you utterly identify with others and with what they are doing. You no no longer want one thing while they want another, or want something from them they are unwilling to give. What they want, you want. What you want, they want. You don't experience another person as a sort of brick wall you are coming up against. That's a very important line. You don't experience another person as a sort of brick wall you are coming up against. And this is important. And you no longer experience yourself as a separate and conflicting solid force. This is very beautiful, this bit. You experience others in a completely different way. They become diaphanous or transparent because your will is not coming into collision with theirs. This completely different, more relaxed, lighter, freer attitude, taken to the nth degree, is something of the nature of enlightenment. The world is the same, but you see it differently. So that's from Know Your Mind, page 53, if anyone wants to look that up. But I find that um, very, very beautiful, and sometimes I do just sit and look around at people and um, train myself to see people as diaphanous beings. And obviously there's probably a certain amount of fantasy there, but that's okay, because I'm imagining something in order to make it real. But it's very beautiful. 
to see people as just a little bit more transparent and diaphanous rather than these kind of rigid lumps that, you know, this lump is crashing into your lump. Because that's how it can so often feel, isn't it? And, and conditions lumpy and knotted. Diaphanous, radiant. So the third mark of conditioned existence is unsatisfactoriness, which is in a way the implication of not living in harmony with the truth of impermanence and um, not having a fixed uh, sense of self. And the Buddha is really saying we suffer because we don't live in harmony with the truth. So we're living at odds with reality. And the traditional image taken from the time of the Buddha is it's like a cart with an ill-fitting wheel. Now, that's not a modern um, metaphor, but I think we can get a sense of it. You're in a cart, it's got an ill-fitting wheel, and you're going, you know, bumping along. And doesn't life feel like that sometimes? Yeah? We're kind of slightly out of kilter with the truth. And we, we can sense that. We're all here because we can sense that. Yeah? There's something not quite right. And the Buddha's saying... That's because you're living with these filters of greed, hatred, and delusion. Take those off. Relax, open, rest. Allow everything to arise and pass away. And allow that to be true of you and true of other people. And see the beauty of um, these more diaphanous, radiant beings or world. You can begin to see trees and things like that is kind of diaphanous and transparent as well. Um, and the Buddha, the Buddha called this being out of kilter spiritual ignorance, and he identified that as being the root of all of our troubles, spiritual ignorance, not seeing things clearly. He spent the rest of his life teaching this to others so that they too could become free, and that tradition became Buddhism. Yeah. So he, presumably he didn't call it Buddhism straight away, he just taught, and then over time, more and more people woke up, became enlightened, and then the tradition started, and it's called Buddhism. <clears throat> so, um, from this perspective, what I'd like to suggest is that you can only connect. Yeah? The, the option of not connecting with other people is no longer there. So the only way you can, li can live is um, with a perspective of connection. And again, imagine what that would be like for connection to be your default setting rather than contraction, fear, anxiety, insecurity, all these things. And connection becomes your default setting because from the perspective of enlightenment, this notion of having a kind of separate, independent, isolated life becomes a complete nonsense. You realise that your life is not separate, independent and isolated your life is deeply, deeply connected all the time because everything is just kind of rising and falling, dependent on causes and conditions. Um, lovely quote from Shantideva, who was a, a great practitioner. And he said, Just as these arms and legs are seen as limbs of a body, why are embodied beings not seen as limbs of life? Yeah, reflect on that. So I've got legs and arms and a sense of a body and it's completely automatic for me to see that as connected and I, I sort of constellate around these legs and arms and body and I get a sense of this is me and he's saying we can have that attitude with one another so we're, we are all 
limbs, arms and legs of life. This very poor metaphor. But you know what I mean. So he says, just as these arms and legs are seen as limbs of a body, why are embodied beings not seen as limbs of life? And from that point of view, you would care as deeply about other people as you do about yourself, automatically. That becomes your default setting. So the idea I care about myself more than you becomes a complete nonsense, doesn't make any sense anymore. So what's very interesting and um, I just want to touch on is it seems when you read the scriptures and you look at the life stories of great Buddhist um, sages, teachers, beings, whatever you want to call them, what they do when they have woken up to the truth, when they've directly experienced the truth, is they completely and utterly dedicate their lives to communicating that to others. Very, very interesting. The Buddha... You know, he, he, he waited a couple of months after he gained enlightenment, presumably to, partly just to assimilate what had happened, because it was a, it was a complete sort of reorganisation of his, his mind and his heart. And also he, I guess, needed to come up with words to express the inexpressible. But once he started to teach, that's what he did full-time, every waking moment, till he died, over 40 years just travelling and teaching, travelling and teaching, travelling and teaching. Um, <coughs> Sangharakshita, who lives just over there, he's 90. He never has a day off. Amazing. He's 90 years old. Um, I hear quite a lot about him because I come out here a lot now that I live locally. And he, if he's well enough, he'll see people every day. He's not always well enough, but he, he, do, he doesn't ever seem to think, I'm just going to slob out today. As far as I can tell, I think that's not in his vocabulary. Um, and you can get a sense of that if you think this is the truth. You know, I know the answer to human suffering, and you see people suffering. How can you not just tirelessly, tirelessly, tirelessly give people a key to the door? So I find that very, very inspiring. You know, Sankarachita's example of just um, tireless going out to people tirelessly communicating the Dharma. Yeah, he's still writing things. He's been um, registered, partially cited for years, so he has to dictate everything. He's still doing that. Yeah. Hakuin, another great Buddhist uh, teacher in Japan, I think about 15th, 16th century. He's one of my real heroes, fantastic teacher, very, very intense. He gained enlightenment and then he just taught that flat out. That's all he did for the rest of his life. So I think the sense of protecting your own energy in a way, and protecting your own space, that dissolves away. And it's not like, you know, I'm the teacher. I don't think they would think I'm the teacher offering something. It's more sharing. It's just the sharing of your wide open heart. Yeah. Um, and I th the next point I think is very, very interesting um, in terms of us, that... You know, the Dharma, the truth, is around us all the time, but it's inaccessible unless you're a really exceptional person like the Buddha. But for most of us, it's inaccessible, and we need a human being to open the door for us. So human beings become portals. I, I really love this notion of a portal. A portal is a kind of um, um, a gateway between one... So the world and the next, one dimension and the next, um, 
between the sort of mundane and the magical, however you want to put it. But we need human beings in order to um, translate the mysterious wonder of the truth into words that we can understand so that we can, then we can practice. Yeah? So the Buddha was a portal, <coughs> Sangharaksha is a portal, Hakan was a portal, and we can become portals to one another. So that was the other thing I really wanted to bring out in this talk, that um, every one of us here, we are little mini portals to one another and to people we come into contact with in the world outside. And I really, really love that. I suppose it's a bit like the magician metaphor. In um, the Harry Potter books, in The Subtle Knife, something that I really loved in that book, which is the middle one. No, it's not the Harry Potter books. It's the um, Philip Pullman, thank you. His Dark Materials, it's a a trilogy of um, amazing books. And the subtle knife is a a knife that you have to hold it in a very particular way, like perfect balanced effort and focus. And then if you find the right place, you can peel apart the sort of intersection between dimensions. So it's like a gateway, a portal into seeing things completely differently. Yeah, I love that. So we all need to learn how to kind of wield the subtle knife for one another and for other people in this world. Um, So I think the NBC is a portal. The Manchester Buddhist Centre is a portal for the people of Manchester, for the people that come there. And I, I would imagine that many of you are here because you went there and you felt something different. You picked up on something that was, um, well, something that's called like a mysterious something, a mysterious other, a flavour. People are kind and friendly, and, and that's wonderful. And there's also something mysterious that lies behind that friendliness and kindness and so on. Yeah. Um, <coughs> just be aware of time. Is it right if I just go on for a little bit longer? Yeah. Um, Adastana is definitely a portal. Yeah, this place definitely has got something, I think. And I'd just like to tell you a little bit about um, something that happened for me and why I moved to live near here. Yeah. So this is, again, how we can make decisions in life on many different levels. So in some ways I've moved to live near here because I wanted a, a simpler life, and it's easier living in a small country town than it is in a big city. I've got disability, so just coping with a big city is tiring. I looked on the Met Office app or website and discovered that the rainfall in Ledbury is a third less than the rainfall in Manchester. <laughs> and I thought, that's attractive. <laughs> Because my, my body's much worse in damp conditions, so living in the northwest of England is about the least auspicious conditions for my body. So those were good reasons, but I didn't move here for those reasons. What happened is they, there was a big building project to get this place together, and then there was an opening weekend. Some of you may have come to that. I think it was probably three years ago, two or three years ago. Very, very recent. You might come here now and think this place was really established. It's very, very new. And we were all in the shrine room over there um, doing some practice. I can't actually remember the details of the, the context, but somehow or other, some, I was hearing that Adistana means grace and blessings. 
Yeah, and that this place has been called Adistana by Sangharakshita because it's a place of grace and blessings. And I was meditating in the shrine and I had this kind of vision, and I don't very often have visions, but it was a vision of there being a sort of hole in the roof and the golden light was just pouring down into the shrine room and then it was rolling out into the world like great big donuts or great big hay bales. There were definitely circular spinning sort of orbs of light just pouring out into the world from this place. And I thought, wow, God, that's quite something. And it was very um, real. And, um, and I had this kind of, this wor- these words, I have to move here. I have to move here. I have to follow the golden light. Those were, that was the expression, I have to follow the golden light. And then a few weeks later, I was here for a retreat, and I had another sort of bigger vision of there being what I call a hole in the firmament. So sort of above here, there's just a big hole, and this light is pouring in from another dimension into this hole. So it wasn't just the shrine, but the whole place, and again, just pouring out into the world. And the sense of what I needed to do was to follow the golden light. And that's really why I've moved here. It's not for rational reasons. The rational reasons are there, but it was this deep, deep intuition that that's what I needed to do. And when I look over my life, I've done that a number of different times. So when I was, I came across the Dharma in New Zealand in the 80s, and I came over to go and retreat at Taraloka. I'm getting really hot talking about this. It's interesting, isn't it? Like I'm having some kind of tumo heat arising. Oops, now I've got, I've got the microphone in my pocket. Yeah, so I got involved with, the, with Buddhism in New Zealand, and I came over to Taraloka just to go on a retreat um, as a visitor. And I, and I was in the kitchen in the community at Adistana, and I thought, sorry, at Taraloka, thank you. In the kitchen at the community at Taraloka. And again, I had these words, I have to live here. I have to live here. I have to, I have to move here. And that was really crazy. You know, that was like the other side of the world, really bad back. I would have to leave everything. Didn't know anybody. But very, very strong intuition. That's what I needed to do. And I did. And it was a, a really extraordinary time for me of, in terms of a sort of smashing up of my dysfunctional habits or some of my dysfunctional habits and an opportunity to become a new in this context, the most extraordinary kindness. Dianandi was part of that. Diamala was part of that. Very, very important time in my life. That was following the golden light. When I moved to Manchester, coming to the NBC, I came to help out at Clear Vision. And again, I have to live here. I've always found the NBC just the most amazing building. Every time I go through the front door, I, I feel this kind of awe. Like, I can't believe this place exists in the middle of Manchester. You go through the door and it is a bit as if there is light there, isn't there? So I knew I needed to move there. So um, I think what I wanted to um, exhort you all is to listen. Listen deeply to these calls that I believe we all have. We We all have these calls from the beyond. Whatever, for me it's manifesting as golden light and it usually manifests as words. Maybe half a dozen times in my life I've had these words telling me something very, very important and these images of light. But it may be something different for you, but please, please, please listen. 
listen deeply because your life, you, we're all on a journey already just by being here. And you, you, there will be some deep knowing in you about where that journey can take you. And I think what we often do is we close our ears, we close our eyes. But please listen, listen deeply. So this is my final point, and I'll say just a little bit about this. You know, how do we loosen up our sense of clinging, the knottedness and self-attachment, so we can hear the call? We can let in the light. How do we do that? And the Buddha is so brilliant. He says, well, at the very least, we can give. So he's given us something that anyone can do. He's not saying, well, you have to meditate for 12 hours without moving. He's not saying you have to be completely morally impeccable. He's saying, give. Everybody can give. And Sangharaj has got, got a really good thing about this. He says, giving is the first paramita or point of training for the bodhisattva, those of us who are training to gain enlightenment for the sake of all beings. Giving is the first step because it is the complete opposite of grasping. It's as if the teaching is saying, you may not be, you may not be morally scrupulous, you may not be able to meditate for even five minutes at a time. You may not dip into the scriptures from one year to the next. But if you aspire to lead any sort of higher life, at least you can give. I love that. You know, anyone can do that. Anyone can have a moment of open-handedness. Um, <clears throat> I had a really remarkable experience of someone else's generosity. Well, I've had many, many remarkable experiences but I'm going to tell you about this one because it was very powerful so I came to live at Taraloka when I was 30 I had a very very bad back had 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 to give up my career when I was 25 I had no career no identity no security I had a little bit of savings but not much at all got through those quite quickly and when I left Taraloka when I was 35 um probably because this, this kind of inner calling was telling me it was time to move to the next phase of my life. But here I was. I didn't have a work permit. I couldn't work in the UK legally. Um, very, very bad back and no money. And yet I knew I wanted to stay in the United Kingdom. So Punya Mala, who's a very good friend, she took me in to live with her family. Yeah, she gave me a home. Amazing, isn't it? She just said, come and live with me. And then um, one Christmas, I was spending some time with Sue Siddy, who was an order member in Sheffield. And I was going home to my brother and my family for Christmas in, down in Reading. And somehow or other, he understood, or I, I might have told him, I couldn't take any presents, didn't have any money to take any Christmas presents. So he took me shopping to buy Christmas presents for my family. Sounds a tiny thing but I've never ever forgotten it because it was just so amazing that he understood in a way he understood the need for me to be able to give I didn't want to turn up um, empty handed with my family so he trawled around the shops in Sheffield with me and brought these not, not extravagant presents things like a scarf my, my brother maybe some toiletries or something for my sister and I can't remember but I never forget that him giving me his time, his money, his energy, and his awareness that... It, he, I remember him saying, it's not right. It's just not right for you to go without any presents. Let's go shopping. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
so that had a huge effect on me. It was a long, long time ago, but I've never forgotten it. So um, I think because of that, as Sona mentioned yesterday, you know, generosity is a very important practice for me because I know what it's like to have nothing. You know, really nothing. Well, I wasn't a refugee. I wasn't a migrant. So in some ways I had many, many things. But from a sort of Western point of view, didn't have my health, didn't have a work permit, didn't have security, didn't have money. And these people enabled me to feel abundant, you know, feel loved, have a home and take presents to my family. Um, so personally, I, my attitude to money is I, that it's like water. Yeah, I've got quite a strong sense of this. I don't really know why. But I, my sense is that money is meant to move and flow. That it's a pe- very peculiar thing, money. It's kind of invisible, and yet it dominates our world so much. But it seems that when it gets dammed up, that's when things go wrong. You know, if you look at the banking crisis, really that was people building dams with, you know, fictional water behind it. But if it gets, da- if it gets dammed up, it seems to disrupt things. So if you think that we've got this idea of, fl- of flowing, life is flowing, things shouldn't get dammed up because then you're creating all this pressure. So my, my whole sort of um, experience with money is just keep it moving. I've sort of got a commitment to keeping money moving um, without being overly idealistic. I have needs. I need to meet my needs. So, you know, I've got enough money to be, um, you know, to be able to eat and have a home and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I have this very strong commitment to keeping it moving. So when I saw the sponsorship this morning, I just thought, oh, yeah, 10 quid, I can give 10 quid. And that's lovely just to have that response of, yes, I can give 10 quid. And I try and have that attitude to almost any, any um, appeal that comes my way just to give something. And I think by just giving something, you're training yourself away from that kind of tight-fistedness towards openness. It's all very, very mysterious. <clears throat> but I, and I think in some ways the fact that I've had nothing... <clears throat> has been of great help to me because I'm not frightened of having nothing. Because I think when, when we've not had nothing, there's a huge fear around, oh my God, you know, what if I had nothing? How would I survive? Well, I know you do survive. Yeah, and I've also discovered that I can live very, very simply and I've discovered that I'm enterprising. And I think actually those are really good things to reflect on. I think if you're enterprising and you can live sip- simply, you have nothing to fear. You will always be all right. Yeah. Um, so giving is, is really far-reaching and it will help us become more and more of a portal because we're becoming a person who's defaulting to giving as opposed to contracting. Every time you do that, you change the world. Every time you don't give, you change the world. And that's really worth reflecting on because you're creating a tight world. Every time you give, you're creating an open world. Yeah. And like I said, you know, you don't have to give away your life savings. Sometimes a fiver here, a fiver there, a bit of time, a bit of energy, take someone shopping. You know, these things, they're easy to give. And so I don't want anyone to go away from this thinking that if you've got savings, that's a bad thing. You might need your savings. But it's more the attitude, this attitude of abundance and giving. I think it's absolutely crucial on the spiritual path. You will not 
get very far if you don't have an attitude of abundance and openness. So just to conclude, um, <clears throat> I'm just going to finish with three things that Sangha actually says about the Buddhist, Buddha's enlightenment, which I think are very, very beautiful. He defines enlightenment as being illumination, freedom, and love. So illumination is the sense of seeing things as they really are. The shining forth of a light, an illumination, in the brightness of which things become visible in their reality. The veils, are, the veils of ignorance are parted and we can see as if for the first time. So illumination, very beautiful. And then freedom in the sense of release. The Buddha compares the mind of one gaining enlightenment to that of a person who has come safely out of a dangerous jungle or been freed from debt or released from prison. It is as though a great burden has been lifted, the burden of ignorance. The Buddha said, even as the great ocean has one taste, the taste of salt, so my teaching has one taste, the taste of freedom. And then compassion, in the sense that the Buddha decided to teach what he had realized for the sake of all beings. And that this is a crucial part of the enlightenment experience. In fact, it's said that in the, the enlightenment without that compassionate act of then sharing with others is not full enlightenment. And it seems to me that, um, well, certainly people I know who seem to be wise, they are just extraordinarily compassionate and generous and just give all the time. So it seems to be a flip side of waking up is compassionate giving. Good. Thank you.